your Bibles, if you would please, to the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. And this evening we're looking at verses number 20 and 21, the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And here the scripture says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We have reached the end of this long, long journey through the book of Revelation. And either we come here tonight and reach this place with a sigh of regret, or we come with a sigh of relief. And uh, if you come with a sigh of regret, then I think that I really haven't done my job in teaching through this book. But if you come with a sigh of relief, then just know this, that we're going to have many, many opportunities to look back and study again, look back into some of these scriptures and other messages that we've studied through the book of Revelation. And to me, it's always regretful when we come to the end of one of these studies. Uh, Putting it all together and studying out the material and taking the time that it takes to do that is really a rewarding experience. And there's just a sense of excitement that you have with Bible study, or at least I think you should have a sense of excitement. And that's because you begin to see pieces of the puzzle start to fit together. And you develop an understanding of what's written here. And, and then the whole picture, the whole parts of the puzzles be, puzzle begins to come together and come sharply into focus. Now, we began our study in late, or I should say late summer, that is, late summer of 2008. And maybe some of you will remember, if you've been here that long, that I said it's going to take a long time to get through the book of Revelation. And I said, some of you are going to be tired and you're going to be worn out before we get through with it all. If you're interested in only the highlights of things like the tribulation and you're interested in the Antichrist and that's your main deal and if you're interested in the the book of Revelation merely as a way to look into events of the future, then you will get worn out with this book. But there are some of you that are still here. And so uh, after all these many months and in fact years of studying this book, and after 142 sermons, we finally come down to the last few minutes. And I hope that if I were to ask you, why are you still here, that you would say, this is the Word of God, and we love it, and we need to know all of it. And that's really the way that I want it to be. You see, real students of the Word of God do not go to hear God's word because of a preacher or because there's some fad that they're interested in. And people don't really that are are good Bible students would come here because they think that I have some kind of special insight and, and new ways to interpret the scripture. I mean, you didn't come here to be slain in the spirit, I hope, or to have some kind of ethereal experience with God because you won't get that here. You know, as a preacher, I know that I'm not w- able to do those things. As a matter of fact, sometimes I have a trouble keeping myself awake, so I know that you're having problems out there. But the Word itself, that has to be the attraction. That has to be the reason that we're here. And again, that's the way that I want it. It's the way that it should be. The Word of God should be the thing that brings us together into a place like this where we just listen to hear what God has to say to us through His Word. This past month, I guess it was about a month ago, I think, I I finished reading a book uh, that was uh, actually, it's a kind of an, it's it's an interesting book. It's written from a little bit of a biased standpoint, and the name of it is called The Shooting Salvationist. 
And it was the story of a fundamental preacher, actually one of the earliest fundamental preachers back in the 1920s, and he lived, uh, actually, he lived on up into the 1950s. Uh, some of you may have heard of J. Frank Norris, but he was one of the early fundamentalist preachers, and he, was, um, he pastored the first megachurch, and that was in, uh, I have to think for just a moment where that was. I should know that. I read the entire book, but it's in Texas, and and uh, who cares about Texas anyway? So it's somewhere down there in Texas. And so he pastored the first mega church. But one of the things that people were so attracted to him for is because he was a sensationalist. I mean, he, he always had these sensational titles to his message. And, and people would come to hear him because it was, it was just, just to see the latest antics that he would do up on the stage and, and things that he would do as as far as... Uh, what he would say, what his latest rant was against anybody that wasn't him. Now, thankfully, he got straightened out some, on some of those things, I understand, later. But when he was first getting started, that, that's what he was, a sensationalist type of preacher. But we should never want people to be attracted to what we have to say because of something that we do up here. I mean, preacher doesn't want to be attractive because of the way that he carries himself or anything like that. The Word of God is the attraction. So you don't come to hear some wild and crazy guy up here in a circus act up here. You come because you love God's Word simply because it is God's Word. So the Word, when the Word is preached in truth, then that is God speaking to us. And a preacher needs to be hidden behind the cross when he preaches. He doesn't need to be standing out in front of it trying to cover it up. It's all about Jesus Christ and who he is. So there is, with a, there is a sense of calmness and sweetness as we come to these last words of Revelation because they are very sweet words. They're the last words of Scripture. Uh, I've spoken previously on the last invitation of the Bible where God invites sinners to come to him. The last time that we see that, that's in this chapter. And it's remarkable that, that God should do that when we have read about the end times and we see all these things that happen, we see how God pours out his wrath on the wickedness of men. And we would think that what God is ready to do now is just throw up his hands and say, I am through with the human race. I want no more to do with it. But God created the world knowing what we would do. God knew exactly what we would do and we would do and he already had put a plan into effect that would bring to him the most glory conceivable. He decided that he would call out a people for his name, that he would, uh, they would surrender to him under the power of his sovereign grace. And then those same people, once they have received him as Savior, would call out to him to have him come back to take them home. And that's really the essence of these last two verses. This is really the sweetness of it because it's the last wish of God's people. God gives the last invitation and the last wish that we have in Scripture is a plea for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and take us home. And I have to tell you that I do believe that that John was overwhelmed by what he wrote. Revelation is really just too far beyond imagination to think that he could ever make this up. And it just follows too closely and anticipates what we read in Old Testament prophecy to think that what we have here is just just the delusion of some old man. Remember when we talked about that, how people might think, well, John just dreamed it all up. He's a crazy old man who dreamed it all up. And I think that John was as surprised 
as you and I are to find out some of the things that God showed him. And I think that he was interested in the highlights of it, just like you and I are. Interested in the tribulation, interested in the Antichrist, and all of those things that are described here. But as he wrote these last words, I do believe that there was a more pressing issue on his mind. He was, he was an outcast. He was on the Isle of Patmos by himself. He'd been exiled there for the cause of Christ. He was an old man, and I think that he had one great hope. Yes, tribulation is coming. God said that, yes, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And yes, the world is being prepared for a, for a great upheaval. But most important of all to him was to see Christ coming to rapture his people from this sinful world. I think that was the, the thing that was central on his mind as he comes down to the very last words of Scripture. John anticipated, John expected that Christ would return. And do you know this, uh, going back all the way back to the very beginning of our study in Revelation, that I explained to you then that the one great event that's yet to happen in the future is not, that will happen rather in the future, this one great event is not explained. The rapture is not even talked about in the book of Revelation. Well, we think that it's implied, but it, it certainly is implied, but it's never talked about here. And yet this is the thing that I believe John is most interested in. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So that wish dominates these last verses. So I'm going to return to that thought in just a few minutes. But I'd like for us to look first of all tonight at these verses as the last promise. The last promise. And I want to remind you that we have come to the end of the canon of Scripture According to what we've read in verses 18 and 19, what we've studied there, this is the last revelation from God. This is the last time that God speaks. When we see the final amen in verse number 21, we never have another revelatory word from God. And what I'm saying to you is that God no longer inspires Scripture. Now, I do believe we can pray to God through the Holy Spirit. We receive answers to our prayer. But God gives no one new revelation. There is no new inspiration. And many people dispute that, and we know it. Uh, many people say, no, that's not right. God gives me revelations all the time. And, and we've talked about that, the pizza dreams and all those kinds of things. But I don't think that those kinds of people really love Scripture the way that we do. Because they're not satisfied that God has said all that he's going to say and that God is capable of saying everything that he wanted to say. But we look at the Bible and we see this as, as Scripture that is completed and we revere God's Word as the completed Word of God. Remember that Paul tells us that these words are profitable for profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be completely and thoroughly furnished into all good works. So this really is the last of it. You read it here, that's the end of it. And I want us to notice the last words that Jesus speaks. John says, He which testifieth these things saith, and here are his last words of Jesus. The last ones Jesus spoke to us. Surely I come quickly. And those are the last words that God spoke to man. You know, the next time we're going to hear God speak, when we hear him speak audibly again, the next time, I think it's when he comes with a shout, when he comes with a trumpet, when he comes with the voice of the archangel, and that's when Jesus comes back to earth again. 
And these are words of certainty that we read. He says, surely I come, surely I come. And that first word, surely, that is a guaranteed promise. That is an absolute certainty. And John adds to that, amen. And amen is a word that means so be it. It's like putting a stamp of approval on something. In other places in Scripture, it's translated as verily or also as truly. And this is that word of commitment that God has given us that he will return. And this is just remarkable when we think about the promise that's given here that this promise is found in both the beginning of the Bible and in the end of the Bible. Did you know that? The Bible starts with the promise and it ends with the promise. When God speaks to us in the beginning and the end, he comes with a promise. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And you might want to keep your finger in Genesis for a few minutes because we're going to come back at another time to this as well. But a very familiar scripture to you is in Genesis 3, verse number 15. And uh, I've preached on this passage many times. You've heard it many times. And it's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. And in verse number 15, Genesis 3:15, there are two promises that God gives. Now, God is actually speaking to Satan. And he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There you see that Jesus is talking about the seed of the woman. And that refers to Jesus Christ. And I think there's also an application that can be made that this refers to the elect of God. But primarily, I think that the verse refers to Jesus Christ. He is the seed of promise. He's the one who's coming. So I want to give you actually the second promise that you find in these verses first. I'll give you the second promise. And the second promise is the promise of a suffering Savior. God speaks to the old serpent to the old devil, the one who's the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And he says to him, you will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. And what we have there is a prediction of the humility of Christ. It's actually a prophecy of the cross. This is a verse that tells us that when the seed of the woman comes, that he will suffer, that there will be agony, that he will die in shame for our sins And so that's a verse that's actually foretelling the shedding of blood and and telling us that there is a ransom that's going to be paid to buy us out of the slave market of sin and God is going to give us a pardon for all of our transgressions through belief in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The first time he came into the world, he came as a sin offering. He came as the Lamb of God. He came as the one who went to the slaughter and he went with obedience and as the word of God says, without a whimper, without a complaint, that Jesus went there and he willingly gave his life for us. That's the second promise that you find in the verse. And so it's not all that God said. There is a first promise that's given here and the first promise actually has a view towards the second coming. And so we have both the first and the second coming of Christ found in this scripture. And that second promise is the promise of a conquering king. Satan, God says, you are going to bruise his heel. And that means that Satan would inflict a wound upon Jesus. But it's not a fatally mortal wound. No, even though Jesus would die, and he did die as a man, but Jesus rose triumphantly over the grave. 
And when he did, he conquered sin, death, and hell. And though it's been 2,000 years now since Jesus died and since he arose, actually, at the point that he came out of the grave, and at the point point he died, and the point that he came out of the grave, he had actually then sealed the doom of Satan. Time doesn't mean anything to God. Satan had already been doomed when Jesus died on that cross and said it was finished, and then when he arose from the grave, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of waiting it out, and at the right time, he will return. Just as we discussed in services this morning, a harvest is coming. Christ is coming back. So he, this is a promise in the scripture here that he will crush the head of the serpent. And we see that in Revelation. It's all played out there. And as it takes place, we see that Satan gives his best shot. His most concentrated effort at conquering God is played out in the book of Revelation. There we see that he draws upon a world of evil men. He, he draws all of the world together in a great confederation, in a conglomeration. He has a, a world of armies of men, but also an army of angelic evil angels. The evil angels that come and assist him in this battle, and they fight against the Lord. But the Word of God says in this scripture, Genesis 3.15, he will not succeed. He cannot win this war. And so we read in Revelation 19 that the king comes and he rides on a white horse. He has the breastplate of righteousness and then with that mighty sword that he has, he makes a quick work of this rebellion. And he binds Satan and he binds his evil angels and he casts them into the bottomless pit. And then finally, as we read, God removes him from that place and then puts him into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And the word of God says the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. And so Satan is tortured forever in the fires of hell. So the last promise that God gave, this last promise is the very best promise of all because it tells us that one day all of the troubles that we experience will be over. All the things of this life that we go through, things that we think make us so unhappy and we just can't seem to make it through, the Word of God says it is all going to be over, that he's going to take care of all of that. Our great adversary will be defeated, and he promises we will reign with Christ forever and ever. So we have a promise. Then secondly, in these verses, we find the last prayer. This is the last recorded prayer that we have in Scripture. John responds to Jesus' words. Jesus said, surely I come quickly. And John answers like a responsive reading. And he says, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And that's the last wish. That's the last plea that we have in Scripture. And how appropriate that plea is. You ever thought about this? When you, when you get ready to die or when the end comes and you know it's your last prayer, what are you going to pray for? Ever thought about that? What is it that you'll pray for? Maybe you're dying, and I hope this doesn't happen to anybody, but perhaps you're suffering when you're ready to die, and so you may pray that your suffering will be ended. You may have a prayer for your loved ones as you die, and you ask God to take care of them and watch over them. Maybe you are, um, I don't know, I hate to say the word liberal because that wouldn't be quite right, but maybe you're one of these people who say, peace on earth. I mean, that's what we need. Uh, Pray for peace on earth. And that's a good thing to pray for, to pray for peace on earth. And perhaps you pray for that there would be no hunger and there would be no sorrow, that there would be no crying. And you pray that, God, would you please relieve all the sadness in the world and get all of that. 
Or maybe you have in your prayer an imprecatory prayer. Do you remember what that is? An imprecatory prayer. The last prayer that you pray is, God, get vengeance on my enemies. That's an imprecatory prayer. And maybe that's the last thing that you pray. Well, did you know this? That you can cover all of that in this. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That covers it all. All suffering is ended. Our loved ones will meet again in heaven. There will be perfect peace on earth. There will be no hunger. There will be no suffering. There will be no pain. There will be no more crying, no more sadness. And there will be righteous judgment executed among all the enemies of God. So all you need to do is save all the other stuff and just come down to the end and say, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And you just prayed a prayer for all of that. So John says to Jesus, he says, Come. He prays to him, and he says, come, and he invites Jesus to come back. Now, let's think for just a few minutes about this. Let's think about uh, the first words that man spoke to God. And we'll talk about both of these, the last words that man spoke to God and the first words that man spoke to God. And these two incidents are radically different from one another. I mean, thousands of years passed between the first things that, first thing that man said to God and the last thing that he says here in Revelation chapter 22. A lot of history goes by between those two statements. So what were the first words that man spoke to God? Well, I have it on your listening sheet tonight that the first words that man spoke to God were a dreadful explanation. The first words were a dreadful explanation. Now think about it for a minute. What were the first words that man spoke to God? And let me give you a little bit of a hint about that. You go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll find that God spoke to Adam, and he said to him, you and Eve, you, you go, and he says, you replenish the entire earth. You, you just populate the entire earth. And a little bit later than that, God said to man, and this was right before Adam sinned, he said, Adam, you can eat of any tree that's in the garden. And he says, you can have everything but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, of that tree, you shall not eat of that tree. Well, Adam disobeyed God. And as soon as he did, he knew it. Immediately he knew this. He recognized that he'd sinned against God. So God came to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, and he looked for Adam. And God spoke again, and he said, Adam, where are you? And you know the response? It was the first words that man spoke to God. And it was a dreadful explanation. And what did Adam say? He said, God, I was hiding. I heard your voice, and I was afraid, and I was naked. And so I took off like a shot, and Eve and I went into the densest part of the garden, and we hid there. We hid among the trees because I was afraid. And that's not an explanation that Adam wanted to give. I don't think that he wanted to say, I was naked and so I hid from you. Oh, that's the last thing that he wanted to say. I mean, the last thing that he ever wanted to be was in the presence of God. When he sinned, the last thing that he wanted to do was stand before God and confess his sin. And that's because he feared to be in God's presence. The worst thing that he did was, could do was to disobey God. He brought sin into the world. But you know something about Adam? He had the right reaction. He did have the right reaction. And it's, it's a pity that, that we don't see things as Adam saw. 
And it's a pity that we don't know God like Adam knew him because Adam knew this, I cannot stand in front of God without a covering for my nakedness. I can't stand in front of God without any way to cover up the fact that I have sinned. And you know that there's so many of us that we sin and we act like it doesn't mean anything. God doesn't really care about it. But I'll tell you this, folks, the last thing that you ever want to do is stand in front of God and give an account for your sin if you have nothing to cover you up. You don't want to stand before God. You don't want to come without a covering. And the Word of God tells us what that covering is, doesn't it? The covering is the blood of Jesus Christ. The covering is the blood shed on Calvary. The covering is the cross of Christ. And that's what shelters us from the wrath of God. You see, when we have Christ's blood covering us, we stand before God clean and innocent. He doesn't actually see us. He sees his son. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees the cross upon which he died. He sees the blood that was shed for us. And so we have no fear to come into the presence of God with that. So the final words that man spoke to God were words of dreadful explanation. But the last words are very different. The first words are spoken to God in fear, but not these last words that are recorded in Scripture. The last words are words of delightful expectancy. Words of delightful expectancy. See, these are words that are spoken from the other side of that great divide. There is no division with God by the one who spoke these words. These words were spoken by one who had met Christ. These are spoken by one who knew him, one who trusted in Christ. He had no fear to stand in the, in the presence of God. There's no fear present in John's voice. Now, here's a man who had seen the entire scope of the revelation. He'd seen what God will do to the wickedness of men. He saw how the wrath of God would be poured out upon this world. And he saw the great upheavals, the earthquakes, and, and, and the pestilences, and the stars falling from them. All these things Adam saw, because, or rather John saw, because of the wickedness of man. He saw how it was all going to play out. But still, he came into the presence of God with no fear. No fear at all in him. And that's because he knew he was not among those wicked men. He had believed in Jesus Christ. So there's nothing to fear. He's on the Lord's side. He doesn't fear to stand before God. Here is a man cleansed from all of his sins. And so John was looking forward to this, looking for Christ to come home. And that would be the greatest day that he would ever experience. Greatest day for John... But I can promise you this, it's the worst nightmare for someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. There's no lost person that would ever pray this prayer, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But what's it like for a Christian? What's it like for a Christian to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Fanny J. Crosby, someone I think that you're probably all familiar with, the, the blind hymn writer from the 19th century, and she wrote a lot of beautiful hymns we have in our hymn book. But she wrote one particular hymn that she called My Soul's Poem. And she wrote this, and she said, Sometimes when I'm troubled, I just repeat this to myself because this brings great comfort to my heart. And I know that you'll recognize the words. Most of you will. She wrote, Someday the silver cord will break, 
and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I awake within the palace of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And she repeats, I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Does that sound like words of delightful expectancy? That's what's in the child of God's heart. There is no fear. We don't dread the coming of Jesus Christ. No dread that we'll ever see him, that we will see him face to face. No need for us to hide from him. There is no greater joy than to see Christ. And so we cry out together, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, thirdly, in these verses, we have the last proclamation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is the way John began the letter in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 3. He says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And that last verse, this last verse, rather, in Revelation 22, is so fitting because it fulfills that promise of the first chapter. Jesus Christ is the one who is to come. He comes quickly. Now, let me explain to you a minute again the word quickly. Uh, We've been over this before because we see the word several times throughout Revelation that Jesus says, I come quickly. And you say, well, that's not true. He didn't come quickly. It's 2,000 years. We still haven't seen him. And you have all those mockers in 1 Peter chapter 3. I may talk about them a little bit next Sunday night. But all the mockers and scoffers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so you say, no, Jesus did not come quickly. Well, it doesn't mean in the sense that, that it's going to happen in the next 15 minutes. Quickly means when it happens. Everything happens in a hurry. The whole world that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, when Christ comes back, the whole thing, when he gets ready to set the whole thing in motion, it'll be summed up very, very quickly. So when he comes, quickly we're going to see the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace of God and all that he does in what takes place in the world for his people. Now here, if you still have your fingers in your finger in uh, the Old Testament, Genesis. Let's go there to Genesis chapter 2 for just a minute. Jesus says here, surely I come quickly. And I want to give you just a little interesting factoid about the word surely that's used in Scripture, the word surely. Now remember, I said this is a word of certainty. This is a word of affirmation. And the first usage of the word surely in Scripture is kind of an interesting one, maybe a little bit surprising to you. I I talked a little bit about it actually just a moment ago. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thou of what? Thou shalt surely die. You will surely die die. That's the first time you see the word in Scripture. Second time is actually a lie. Second time was a lie told by the greatest liar of all. That's in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. And serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. 
For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So God says, you surely shall die, you will die. And the serpent lied and said, no, 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 you surely will not die. And so the master of deceit used the word, surely he lied. Well, how do we know that he lied? Well, I don't think there's too much argument here. Pass a hospital, go by an orphanage, go by a drug rehab center, stop at a liquor store. No, don't, don't do that. But a liquor store, Hooters, a nightclub, a casino, a cemetery. Everything time that you do, think Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. Let that stick in your brain cause of all of that is Satan's lie. And God was right about it. He said, you will surely die. And all over this world, the landscape is written with that truth. You shall surely die. And man did when Adam sinned. Well, a few final points that I want to give before we close tonight. And that is, the Old Testament contains the old cursed. The, the, the Old Testament contains the old curse. Now we have the last proclamation and the Old Testament contains this old curse. Now do you know what the last words of the Old Testament are? Well you find them very easily and it's right in that divider. Those of you that are biblically challenged there's a big divider right in the middle of your of your Bible. It says Old Testament, New Testament. And right before the New Testament begins you have Malachi and you have these two last verses in Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Listen, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. You know, the old revival preachers used to have a favorite phrase. They would say, turn or burn. And that's the idea that we have here. The last words of the Old Testament, the last thing that's entered into the Old Testament canon of Scripture is a reminder of the curse that we just read about over in Genesis chapter 3. So the Old Testament ends with a proclamation of a curse. And all the way through the Old Testament, since God said that, you shall surely die, all the way through the Old Testament, there are markers and there are indicators that for some there will be a different outcome than the curse that's spoken of there. We, the Proto-Evangelium, when Eve was given that promise, did you know that immediately Eve took that promise to heart? She believed that God was going to fulfill that promise. Now, she had never before had a child, but she had a child. Her first one was Cain. And you know what Eve said when Cain was born? She said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And you know what that actually means? She meant God made good on his promise. I've gotten this man from the Lord. This is the seed of the woman that he's talking about. Well, we know that she was woefully wrong about that. But ever since that time, every Jewish woman for thousands of years prayed for this, that she would be the one through whom God would bring the promised Messiah, the man the, the one that would be the seed of the woman. She hoped that she would be the one. And that promise that, that Christ will come echoes throughout all of the Old Testament. And so we see many Old Testament prophets talking about it. You go all the way back to Genesis, and there, one of the first prophets, Enoch. Enoch! 
talked about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't he? There was a prophecy there. Job talked about it. And Job is actually probably the oldest writing of all the biblical books. Job talked about it. David prophesied it. Elijah uh, talked, or uh, Isaiah rather talked about it. And Jeremiah talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Zechariah talked about it. Malachi talked about it. Over and over again, that promise echoes throughout Scripture. And yet still, at the end of the Old Testament, we have a curse. I will come and smite the earth with a curse. But then the New Testament opens, and the New Testament contains a new covenant. There's a new covenant in the New Testament. Jesus Christ appears on the scene. And here is this promised Messiah. He came, and he brought with him a proclamation of salvation. And he came with hope, and he came to break the bands of the curse that had bound us. And he came to deliver the world from that. He came to take us out of the terrible bondage of sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even the creature is waiting for deliverance from the curse. He wants to be delivered from the bondage. He's talking about even the animal kingdom is looking for the end of the curse. So the end of the New Testament turns out to be quite different from the end of the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with a curse, but the New Testament ends with the book of Revelation and the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he comes and he breaks that curse and he sets the captives free. He promises grace and he proclaims grace and he offers pardon and he gives us a a new beginning in our lives. He changes our hearts. He frees us from guilt and condemnation. And all of that is rolled into his marvelous grace. And he never asks us to do anything for it. You see, he knows that the curse has us bound. He knows that there's no way that we can free ourselves from the curse. He knows that there's no way to break the bondage of it. In spite of all of our high crimes and misdemeanors, though, and our incompetence and our inability, yet he comes with that new covenant and makes it all new again. And it runs on only one kind of fuel. The the new covenant, if 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 I could put it this way, it runs on only one kind of fuel. His grace has planned it all. His mind but to believe and recognize his work and love and Christ receive. For me he died, for me he lives, an everlasting life and light he freely gives. And John says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now finally then, the last observation. The Bible contains a great contrast. And what is the contrast that we find? Well, it's life with, with grace, and maybe I should put it this way, death without it. Life with grace and death without it. And there, there really is no book of the entire Bible that shows that contrast so strikingly, so clearly, so glaringly as we have here in Revelation. Revelation points out to us two very different destinies for people that experience God's grace and people that do not experience God's grace. And that tells you that the center of all of that, if you want to look at it this way, the center of all of this is this word grace. That's what makes it all possible. It's God's grace that does it. That's the determining factor. Without God's grace, there is condemnation. Without God's grace, I fear to come into the presence of God, just like Adam did. 
Adam wasn't covered by God's grace when he sinned against him. God had to shelter him with his grace in order for him to be forgiven of his sins. And so with God's grace, I come into his presence. All the fear and doubt that I have in my life, it's all gone. By God's grace, my hell has been suffered by the one who died for me. Grace tells me that I can enter into the joys of the Lord. It tells me that I can live in the light of his glorious eternal presence, that I live in the presence of the risen Lamb. Grace tells me that I receive a home in heaven, and I enjoy all other riches of God's grace. And so Revelation leaves this indelible impression that there is a much different destiny for those who have not been touched by God's grace. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. And so we have revelation that has all these terrible scenes of the tribulation. And remember how there were people that cried out for rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the face of God. There were people that wished that death would come. They, they thought things were so terrible. Life is so bad. We're being so tortured. And they were that they thought hell is right here on earth. And so if I can just die and I can be relieved of this, just let me die. And then finally they do die. Only they awaken, they awaken to the recognition that there is nothing like hell on earth. They are not ready for hell. Nobody's ready for hell. People joke about it. People have all kinds of things they like to say about it, and they're not worried about it, and they don't care about it. And when you try to talk to them about it, they say, what's wrong with you? There is no hell, or it's okay. I've got plenty of friends there. I'll enjoy myself when I get to hell. I'll just tell you this. Nobody is prepared for the agony of hell. Nobody is prepared for the eternity of hell. And as surely as God is God, as surely as his warnings are true, and as surely as God has sent his own son to deliver us from this awful place called hell, as surely as all of that took place, you can count on this as well, people that reject Jesus Christ and the free offer of his grace and of his love and of his mercy and of his salvation will suffer that eternal penalty of hell. See, there's no place in the Bible where these stark realities come together like they do in the book of Revelation. These, these stark realities of redeeming grace on one hand and condemning retribution of God on the other. No place will you ever find those things put in such glaring juxtaposition as they are right here in the book of Revelation. Now remember, the last words in Revelation are words of invitation just previous to these last two verses, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And then it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Can you think about how awful it is for anyone to let this kind of an opportunity go by? How can anyone hear this and, and leave with no response to it? And we have Christians that are praying, come Lord Jesus. And we're praying, please come, Lord Jesus, even so come. And one day that prayer is going to be answered. Jesus said, surely I come quickly. Can't be soon enough for us, but way too soon for anybody that doesn't believe in him. Christians are praying for Jesus to come back, and yet there are 
or people. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody in this room tonight. Surely you have friends, you have family, you have people around you, people that you work with, that you know, please don't pray for Jesus to come back. Not until you know him as your personal Savior. Give that person the gospel. They can be saved, the word of God says, if they will believe in Jesus Christ. And so with that, these are the final words of Scripture. This is the last that God speaks. Nothing else more spoken by inspiration. And you know what that tells us? What's been said is not going to change. You're not not going to wait until, well, God's got something else to say. And God's going to mitigate some of this. And God's going to change some things around. And it's really not going to turn out this way. No, it's the last of it. This is the end of the scriptures. And the word of God says, this is all settled in heaven forever. And so we don't expect any other outcome but this outcome. This is it. So you just thank God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Thank him that you know him. Thank him Thank Him that he's given you the revelation of his marvelous grace and you have received him as Savior. Thank him for that because there's nothing else but this. Don't expect anything else. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And then it ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And to that we say, blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we come now and our hearts are just too full of what we've spoken tonight. We can't even begin to explain and talk about and say what it means to us to know the wonderful grace of God come down to the very end of Scripture and to hear these kinds of words. Come, Lord Jesus. And then to hear the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We just can't express what that means to us. Lord, we just thank you for the study that we've had. And I pray that everybody can look back on this and and reflect on what they've learned and how they know so much more about Jesus Christ, the one they have trusted in, and what he's going to do when he comes back to this earth. Lord, we look forward to your come. We look for that great appearing in the sky, and we look for the time that we will reign and rule with you throughout all of eternity. Thank you, Lord. And we say as the Apostle John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. In thy name we pray. Amen.